Welcome to the latest Freshfield podcast from Silicon Valley. I'm Boris Feldman, and my guests today are my other co-founders in the office, John Fisher, Doru Gavril, Madge Vasegi, and Sarah Solon. Thank you for joining us. We're going to talk today about some of the culture and financial issues facing technology companies in the United States. And we'd like to begin with a front burner issue for many of the firm's clients, gender and diversity. Madge, could you give our audience sort of the current landscape in the Valley and where you see these issues going over the next year or two? Sure, happy to do that. Look, gender and diversity inclusion issues have been front and center for Silicon Valley companies for years now. Most of our clients have put together specific programs to make sure they are looking at diversity, to make sure they have inclusive teams. For example, we have clients where whenever there is a recruiting opportunity, they require that at least one, if not more diverse candidates are looked at. All of our clients are looking at equal pay across diverse and gender pay. In addition, clients are looking at promotions. How are promotions being made? And they're auditing those promotions. Another area is when clients are looking at how peers are reviewing different employees and they're having calibrating sessions to make sure those performance evaluations are valid and aren't biased. As you know, and I'm sure you've counseled clients on it. California legislatively has started to address board composition, at least from a gender perspective. Do you have a sense of how that's playing out and whether it's made a difference in the actual composition of boards? Yeah, absolutely. It has made a difference. I, we've had clients that had all male board candidates for the last 20 years put two women on the board the, next, the, last, the last year. I think companies are looking at how they can change. You know, it, it doesn't happen overnight. You have to wait for a board opening. You have to see if there are directors that are retiring and coming off the board. But that becomes the impetus for change. And when clients are looking for new directors, new board candidates, gender diversity and, and inclusion is really one of the main things they're looking at. It's definitely top of mind. I haven't heard any company say, well, let me back up. There's been a lot of people, academics or others, who have criticized the California legislature for adopting this law, saying it's not constitutional and otherwise criticizing it. And even the legislators who wrote it acknowledged that it would be challenged, but I have not heard any company say this is a bad idea. Every company I'm talking to, whether they're clients or not, want to comply with this and are complying with this. And in many cases, they needed to refresh their boards anyway, and this gave them another reason to do that. The next hurdle is to have two to three women, depending on the size of your board, right, by 2021. And that's a much harder hurdle because a lot of qualified candidates, frankly, may already be taken and clients are now have to look harder to find the, the next and the next two candidates. They want to know who, who's available. Just, just last week, I got an email from a client that's going to go public in the next you know, year or two. And for whatever reason, they, they think I might know. And I do know many great women candidates. I think uh, boards that maybe didn't look outside the, own, the, the networks of the board members are realizing they want to cast a much wider net and they're doing it. On the topic of board composition, there have been a bunch of lawsuits brought just in the last week, 10 days. Dora, could you talk to our audience about those? 
So there have been three cases, at least that we know of as of right now, all shareholder derivative lawsuits alleging that board members for the defendant companies failed to discharge their fiduciary duties by not paying sufficient attention to diversity on the board. And look, I think sitting here today, nobody operating in good faith would deny that increasing board diversity is a very desirable goal and one that has a certain level of urgency. I'm just going to have to wonder if these particular lawsuits are meant to affect actual change and are the best mechanism for that, or they are in fact cynical and perhaps opportunistic ways to exploit an issue that is very front of mind for for a lot of people. And here's why. In the shareholder derivative context, shareholders already have a number of tools already at hand through which they can affect the diversity of the boards, not the very least of which is their vote. So to bring a shareholder derivative lawsuit implies certain burdens of proof and burdens of pleading. In this particular instance, I believe that the plaintiff would need to show that the board members were not operating in good faith and knowingly, willfully, perhaps even with animus, attempted to silence diversity voices, either on the board or among employees. First of all, in my experience of Silicon Valley companies, that's not the case. And I think it's going to be very difficult for plaintiffs to to prove that. I think it's also going to be very difficult for them to plead that at the pleading stage, where they have to plead these facts with particularity, especially given the fact that companies have had in the past few years, significant initiatives in Silicon Valley to increase diversity of the workforce and of the board itself. John and Madge, you've also both been involved in a lot of board composition issues. Any thoughts on where the racial diversity pressure is going to go now? This is a slightly different response to your question, Boris, but I feel like my perspective is really colored by my M&A practice. And you know, I, I just did a pitch last week for a large serial buy side acquirer, and half the pitch was, you know, discussion on diversity. And I feel like Silicon Valley companies are increasingly much more sophisticated about how they approach diversity. For example, it wasn't, you know, a check the box exercise where they wanted to know sort of the MA team we were presenting and how each member of the team was diverse, but rather it was here are the diverse team members. What mentoring programs do you have in place to ensure that the diverse associate will be in our next deal and the deal after that? We want a, you know, a team that's stable and gets to know us and does deal after deal with us. Madge Vianna's conversation by mentioning that there's tangible feeling that things have moved from a check-the-box diversity exercise to a real prolonged, authentic commitment to diversity And, you know, I feel like, you know, at a board level, it'll be the same authentic process five years from now that it is currently in the M&A landscape. Increasingly, it will be, you know, how do we make sure that we're creating a robust, diverse applicant pool at the board level? I want to move from diversity to money, as, as life often does. The valuations for tech companies now despite everything going on in the economy, remain sky high. Sarah, you do a lot of IPOs. 
over the next two years, how do you think those valuations are going to impact exit strategies for well-performing private companies? Great question. When private company valuations are inflated, the typical path is to go public and not pursue an M&A transaction, or rather, it's maybe not that you wouldn't pursue it, but that the corporates may not be willing to pay the high valuation you have. But I think what's interesting is coming out of the pandemic, even though many companies have been very successful, maybe even more successful than they otherwise would have been because of the pandemic, at least in the tech space. I think we all recognize, as this group has talked about before, there still is a lot of uncertainty. And so what I'm really trying to say is I think everything is on the table. So companies are going to look to go public, but they're also at the same time, even if they're not running a formal dual track IPO M&A process, they will certainly be thinking about what an M&A exit would look like. And for the buyers out there, the big tech companies who may be looking to buy, they'll be very closely paying attention to the filings of these companies and trying to make a decision on, even though the valuation for this company may be high, how much more would I have to spend to build it myself? Or how big might this company get once it's public so that it's beyond my reach? And, you know, over the years, I've seen many situations where a company's pursuing an IPO and they get all the way even up to the eve of pricing, and then a big corporation will come in with an offer that's just too good to say no to. And when I said everything's on the table, I mentioned two things, but I think there's four things really, right? There's IPO, there's M&A, but within that, there's also direct listings, which were a topic we were all talking about a lot before the pandemic, and maybe a little bit less so, but I think that's, that's still an option for some companies. And the fourth thing is SPACs. SPACs are now getting a lot of press. The SPAC funds, special purpose acquisition via corporations rather, are very big. And those types of exits are kind of a hybrid. It's like an M&A transaction at the beginning but then an IPO as well. So everything's on the table and we'll see what happens. John, did you have something you wanted to say on that? I, I mean, I think I'd add a fifth category of transactions and it's really unique to the life sciences space. And it's you know collaborations and licensing arrangements and joint ventures and, and option structures, pathways for early stage life science companies to have access to data scientists and funds from big pharma um, at the same time, not pursuing an IPA and not pursue IPO and not pursuing an M&A transaction. Um, but nonetheless, you know, getting the resources they need to continue developing their product or compound. So let me follow up on a few things that both of you said. Sarah, you've been through many open and closed window cycles in the Valley. And after Dodd-Frank, there was a lot of bad mouthing of going public and people would complain about the regulatory burden and the transaction cost going forward. Do you think that that sort of pejorative view of going public has diminished or does it remain? I think that companies are still loath to go public too early because the thought of being subject to the the ups and downs of the market and the short-term view of investors is something that many founders and executive teams are want to put off, and rightly, I think, put off until their business is more stable. 
I think one thing that's changed over the last 20 years, the dual class structure has become a norm in the technology sector, and that gives management teams more room to innovate for the long term and not be as subject to the ups and downs and the concerns of activists coming in. The companies that go public today are much bigger than the ones that were going public back in 1999, 2000, 2001. And most of them have plenty of financial wherewithal to handle the regulatory aspect of going public, all of which is pretty well understood. And the costs, while not insignificant, certainly are not going to be a barrier. As I think about SOX and everything that's come out of that, it's well understood and post SOX, the Jobs Act was put into place, and that made life for a young public company much easier. To what degree does any of you think that CFIUS review will be a big barrier to acquisitions in the next few years? I think it'll be an incredible barrier, right? I feel like five years ago, for life science companies, if someone asked me to analyze CFIUS issues, I would you know, look to whether the life science startup had security clearances, governmental contracts, if compound could be weaponized, if they had facilities near a military base. And if the answers we got in response to those questions negative, then CFIUS analysis would end. Now, I feel it's a much broader view of what it means for a life sciences startup to be of national importance. Folks are looking at the position in a supply chain. You know, last year, there was a life sciences company slash tech company called, you know, Patients Like Me that collected patient data and that had a CFIUS fire sale because of the security implications of the data they collected. And again, three, four years ago, data really wasn't part of our conversation when we had a CFIUS analysis. So I feel like increasingly regulatory issues are an important part of every tech life sciences m and deal. Do you think that CFIUS remains primarily a problem for Chinese interests or is also an important issue for Europe? So the the example I gave, patients like me um, had a buyer based in China. And I do think in the current environment, it's more difficult for a China-based buyer to navigate the CFIUS process than it is for a European buyer. But there are, there are areas, right, where historically European buyers didn't really have CFIUS issues around, for example, uranium concentration, or you have a particular product that is exclusively provided by Europe. Um, and if they buy a U.S. target, then, you know, 100% of the you know, ability to produce a compound or, you know, a link in the supply chain would then be controlled by Europe. You know, those types of deals, I think, are of interest to CFIUS, irrespective of where the buyer is headquartered, whether it's China or in the U.S. I feel like, you know, issues around data and national security, things that, you know, there's some areas like data, for example, that I think um, do get more attention when it's China versus Europe. This is a podcast, not an infomercial, so I've tried not to pitch other Freshfield people, but we do happen to have one of the top CFIUS experts in the world, Iman Mir, in the Washington, D.C. office. So for those clients listening who may be thinking about an investment or an acquisition with CFIUS issues, you might want to loop him in early. Sarah, before we turn to Director Comp, I want to come back to you on the question 
of direct listings, which for a while were the hot new topic in the Valley. Do you think that they will be the hot topic going forward or are they kind of a fluke? I don't think they're a fluke. I think we're going to still see direct listings. I don't think that they're going to replace IPOs, at least not under the current rules or the, even the current proposed rules. Many companies still want to raise money, primary capital in the IPO, and the proposed rules haven't changed the regulations enough to make the direct listing a good vehicle for that. But I, I think there will still be direct listings, and I think aspects of direct listings that are attractive to companies, there's no reason that they cannot be adopted in the context of a regular IPO, for example, not having lockups, for example. So over time, like many things, the two types of uh, ways of going public will converge a bit, in my opinion. I want to turn now to the topic of director compensation. Some of our clients, as Madge could tell you, with amusing anecdotes, pay their directors pretty well. And director compensation has become a hot topic in Delaware. Where do you see the law now, Madge? And what are you telling clients they need to do to avoid getting in trouble? Sure. Um, so I think where we're seeing director comp change is really just in the procedures and the processes the board follows when they're looking at director compensation. I don't necessarily think because of the litigation around director comp, you're going to see director compensation come down. I think there may be less anomalies, right? I think um, boards are going to be more cautious. They're going to have comp consultants reviewing director compensation to make sure when a change is sought or an increase is requested that it's still market within the peer group. So, so that's really the advice we're giving is to make sure you have the same level of market review and advice from an independent comp consultant when you're thinking about your director comp program or changes to it as you do, frankly, for executive compensation. Do you think that director comp over the near term is going to remain at the relative levels it has or go up or down from those levels? Yeah, I think it, largely it'll stay at, at the same relative levels. I, I do think you'll see increases where it's warranted, where based on a market review, um, you know, the comp committee chair's pay is low based on a market review. And you'll see an increase there and you'll see companies describe the rationale for it in their proxy statements without too much concern. So I think you will see some increases, but generally they may stay at around the same level and then when warranted, increases in comp based on peer reviews. I don't think it's going down. It's pretty rare I, for us to see absolutely. comp ever going I, down. I do not see comp going down. You know, over the last few years, we had some situations where you had anomalies. Um, one of those cases was, you know, some director comp programs still granted a share number at each annual meeting. And as stock prices skyrocketed, those valuations skyrocketed as well. So we saw those change and became more value grants instead of number of share grants. But I agree with Sarah. I don't see comp structures that are at market levels going down. Thank you all for joining us. That brings this podcast to an end. And on behalf of Freshfield, we hope you'll stay in touch with the people in the Silicon Valley office. Thank you.